Hi, I'm Rick Ryman, host of Audibly Speaking, a show on the stories behind the stories of our time. By sounding out on these stories, we give voice to them and hear them for the first time. From the news of the day to history and literature, from audiobooks to leaders on the stump, we examine the backstories of our time, audibly speaking. Way back in 1989, Peggy McIntosh wrote an article on white privilege. And this is a topic that I want to discuss because it is one of those things that I teach in my diversity course. And it is something that has been around for a long time, but it still inspires controversy, largely because people don't know what it is. It seems to be a prickly subject that people just want to steer clear of. And they often criticize the discussions of surrounding white privilege, and yet they don't know what it is. So they are essentially making a straw man argument. They're criticizing an argument that nobody is really making, or at least the people who most discuss white privilege from a social science standpoint are certainly not making the arguments that they are accused of making. So one of these scholars is a writer named Peggy McIntosh, who wrote an article in 1989 called White Privilege, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack. Let me just quote a few things that she says in this article. She writes, and I quote, I realized I had been taught about racism as something which puts others at a disadvantage, but had been taught not to see one of its corollary aspects, white privilege, which puts me at an advantage. I think whites are carefully taught not to recognize white privilege, she writes, as males are taught not to recognize male privilege. So I have begun in an untutored way to ask what it is like to have white privilege. I have come to see white privilege as an invisible package of unearned assets, which I can count on cashing in each day but about which I was meant to remain oblivious. White privilege is like an invisible weightless knapsack of special provisions, maps, passports, code books, visas, clothes, tools, and blank checks, end of quotation. Now to start with, white privilege has nothing to do with intentional racism. It is a consequence of racism, but nobody alive today is responsible for white privilege except in the sense that they are not aware of it and they are deliberately intent on not being aware of it. There are perhaps some people in that category, but the vast majority of people are not responsible for the existence of white privilege and they're not aware of what it is, and so they cannot be considered to be the cause of white privilege. People can be innocent of causing white privilege, yet still responsible for understanding it and fighting against it. And in fact, that is what the social scientists are arguing. So, for example, it is something that is systematic. It is coming from the system. As Peggy McIntosh puts it in this sentence, quote, I want to distinguish between earned strength and unearned power conferred systematically, end of quotation. 
In other words, we have a system in which some people have advantages that other people do not have. They are considered normative by white people because they have always enjoyed them. But they don't always reflect upon the fact that people of color do not enjoy them because of the system, not because of the racism of any individual white person or set of white persons. That is irrelevant. What is relevant is that these are things that people can enjoy if they're white, but not count on if they are people of color. Let me just give a few of her examples. I can, if I wish, arrange to be in the company of people of my race most of the time. If I should need to move, I can be pretty sure of renting or purchasing housing in an area which I can afford and in which I would want to live. I can be pretty sure that my neighbors in such a location will be neutral or pleasant to me. I can go shopping alone most of the time, pretty well assured that I will not be followed or harassed. End of quotation. Those are Peggy McIntosh's examples from way back in 1989. Seems to me that those are perfectly reasonable points that she's making. And if we think about it honestly, we have to admit that white people can count on these things and people of color cannot. To some extent, that is because of a numbers game. In other words, there are far more white people than people of color, although, of course, that's changing demographically and will continue to change. But just because of the reality of those numbers, it is very hard for people of color to be able to arrange to be in the company of people of their race where they may be more comfortable. That's just the tip of the iceberg of white privilege. A more common example is the example of being followed in a store. And I think we can all understand this example. If we're white, how many times have we been followed in a store? If we're honest, it's probably zero or close to zero. But if you talk to a person of color, they will tell you that they have experienced this often. And this is what we mean by white privilege. The white person is not at fault for the fact that he or she is not followed. But the white person is responsible for understanding this unequal and unequitable state of affairs so that all people, and particularly the people who make up the majority of the population, who benefit from this unearned advantage, can do something about it. That is all the scholars of white privilege are talking about. And one of the interesting things that I encounter a lot in uh, reading student responses to Peggy McIntosh's article is that they say, well, this may have been a problem in 1989, but surely it's not a problem today. I don't know how that argument flies in the wake of George Floyd in 2020. Now, George Floyd was accused of passing a counterfeit bill, and it's possible he did not know that it was a counterfeit bill, or it's possible that he did know. And that is not really relevant to this conversation, because the fact of the matter is that if a white person was confronted by the police in the aftermath of such a situation, you can be sure that the white person would be treated 
with some respect while being questioned about this incident. What we saw with George Floyd was anything but some respect. We saw someone who was assumed to be guilty, who was manhandled, forced to the ground, and who was subjected to a sensual torture with a knee on the neck until he suffocated to death over more than nine minutes of time. Now, are we to believe that George Floyd's race had nothing to do with what happened to George Floyd? Are we to believe that if a person is stopped for a traffic violation, that they will not have reason to be concerned if they're a person of color in America in 2021? Again, I think if we're honest, we should be able to say, whether we are a person of color or not, that this is something that people of color definitely have to be concerned about, whereas people who are white will probably not have to be concerned about. The question is not whether there are some exceptions. The question is whether, in general, these propositions are correct. And I think that they are. And so it is not true that just because Peggy McIntosh wrote in 1989 that these things don't exist today. One of the things that Peggy McIntosh wrote after she completed her article was that after she had uh, drawn up this list of examples, I, I quoted a few, she said that very quickly after she had written the list, she had forgotten about the items on the list. She had forgotten what many of the items were. And she said there's something strange about white privilege in that people are supposed to not be aware of it. People are taught that the things that we call white privilege are things that are normative and, of course, should be available to everyone and are taught that all they need to do is make sure that everyone has access to these advantages. But in order to do that, you have to be aware that they exist in the first place. And this seems to be the stumbling block in the eyes of many, many educators, because so many people are not only unaware of the existence of white privilege, but they are resistant to the very subject of it. They don't want to hear about it. They don't want to read about it. There seems to be some special kind of resistance to this idea of all others. They might be interested in reading about the immigrant experience, although sometimes they don't want to read about that either, but they don't seem to want to encounter or deal with or grapple with this topic of white privilege. And I would submit that because it exists in the public forum, then it probably does need to be confronted and talked about. One of the things that I tell my students and I hope that every student understands this, it certainly is something that I say over and over and over again, is that the students do not have to agree with the proposition that white privilege exists. It is something that I tell them, I believe it exists. I am convinced by Peggy McIntosh's article, but they do not need to be convinced by it. They just need to discuss it. And one of the things that I tell them they need to do is to fairly represent what Peggy McIntosh is arguing. They need to define 
the definition of Peggy McIntosh as Peggy McIntosh defines it before attacking it. Because their criticisms of Peggy McIntosh's article or of any argument about white privilege, pro or con, needs to represent the argument that is being denounced and fully. And only then do the criticisms have purchase on our attention and consideration. Because otherwise, the person is making a straw man argument. They're attacking something that the person is not even saying. If the person does not read Peggy McIntosh's article, how in the world can they criticize it? How can they criticize her definition of white privilege if they don't even read what she is saying is the definition? So people do not need to be afraid of arguments. They need to understand them, first of all, and then if they want to critique them, disagree with them, attack them, tear them to shreds, have at it. Ideas are always up for criticism. That is what academia is all about. And a rich and full discussion is welcome. And if at the end of that discussion, the student wants to continue to disagree with white privilege, that is perfectly fine. That is even considered to be a good thing because the student has critiqued an argument after fairly representing it in their critique. But the key point is that they have to understand the argument first in order for their argument to be considered academic in character. If they say, for example, which is a common retort, I fought hard for everything I have. I am not personally racist. I have not oppressed anyone personally. Well, guess what? That is not an argument against Peggy McIntosh's white privilege because she's not saying that you are any of those things. She is saying that unknowingly, unwittingly, unwillingly, unintentionally, you are receiving advantages from white privilege. And here is why, and then she gives her reasons. Now, once you understand that argument, then it's perfectly right for you to critique it in any way, shape, or form you can. Indeed, if you can show that Peggy McIntosh is wrong, you are doing all of us a great service by showing what the holes are in her argument. And I will be the first to say that I will thank you for helping me to understand what's wrong with Peggy McIntosh's argument if you can, in fact, do that. But first, you have to understand what her argument is. And time and again, I encounter students who don't even want to read the article because they're afraid to grapple with an idea. And that is such a sad, sad thing. A young person with a closed mind. Next in sadness is an older person with a closed mind. Nobody should be afraid of an idea. An idea is a starting point of inquiry, and that is what education is all about. So I hope that people will confront the issue of white privilege, read about it, argue about it, and if necessary, dismiss it, but only after they give the proposition the light of day and an open mind 
and a willingness to read about it. That doesn't seem to be a whole lot to ask, especially since issues of race and white privilege are so deeply in the public forum right now in the year 2021, now as much as ever. Thank you for listening. New podcast episodes appear on audiblyspeaking.com approximately once every two weeks. Please subscribe to Audibly Speaking on iTunes or whatever podcast aggregator you enjoy. Until next time, this is Rick Ryman. Happy listening.